So Andrew, like first of all, like can you introduce yourself, like where you're from, your background, and how you started? Yeah. Um, you know, I my name's Andrew. Uh, first off, I'm I'm current with my I'll start my current job, then I'll kind of work my way backwards a little bit. So um currently in uh in the NBA, I work for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, my role there is um the director of performance and rehab. Um I've been here this is my ninth season coming up, so I've been here for for a while now. Uh, and I've served in various roles. I started as the G League strength coach. Um, I was an assistant strength coach here. Um, and, you know, th throughout the years, have just kind of um, garnered more responsibility as I went. Um, but my my journey in strength and conditioning isn't unlike anyone else. Um, I was a college athlete and probably um, an under-athletic athlete that enjoyed training as much as I enjoyed game days. <laughs> um, so I was always very much into it. Uh, and that was at a young age, high school and college. Um, and then again, just enjoyed the process of working out and training and getting better. Uh, and I, it wasn't until I, I think my junior year in college, I transferred to a, to a one double a school. And it was the first time I was exposed to a, a full-time college, like full-time strength and conditioning coach uh, where that was his job. He was there to train athletes. And I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. So uh, I remember talking to him and I'm like, this is your, this is your job. Like you work in the weight room and train players. Like, yeah. I'm like, that's, that's what I want to do, man. <laughs> uh, so that was at Missouri state university. Um, and uh, after I graduated, I actually flirted with being a, a teacher for a minute, um, but wound up at university of Missouri as an intern. Cause I, di I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and so I applied for a strength and conditioning internship at Mizzou. Uh, that's where I met your friend, Pat Ivy over at Louisville. Um, and you know, a one semester internship turned into about eight years there, uh, through various levels of the GA, um, assistant director of strength and conditioning, um, and, and just that many different, again, garnered different responsibilities throughout the year. Um, probably about five or six years in, I decided, uh, I wanted to, to, to go to PT school, but I wanted to go to physical therapy school from the standpoint of becoming just a better coach and improve my knowledge base. So I actually went to physical therapy school at University of Missouri. Um, that's a really long three years of being a full-time strength coach and a full-time student at the same time. So um, it was a very hectic time. Uh, when I graduated, I'd been at Mizzou for a while um, and I wanted to to go somewhere where I got some good mentorship as a therapist. And so I went to Exos um, in, in Florida, uh, worked there under like a really great staff, just really great people, um, was there for a little over two years and um, learned a ton. It was, it was just an ideal opportunity for me to, to become a truly a therapist all like full-time. Um, and after about a couple of years, uh, I wanted to get back into the coaching side and what I want to do. And I kind of uh, threw my name out there. And at the time, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of physical therapist strength coaches. I think now that that's that's not the case anymore. Like, uh, you know, this is 10, 10 years ago or so. And so Oklahoma City was looking for someone with that skill set. Um, and there just wasn't a lot of them. And so they got a hold of me then. Um, I think now I always say if, if I applied for the same job I got now, I probably wouldn't get it <laughs> just because I feel like that those, uh, those credentials are becoming a little bit more popular. You see them a lot more, um, 10 years ago, wasn't the case. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time, um, and wound up in, in Oklahoma city. Nice. So, um, I'm going to ask a question that's not on the list. But how do you think about like uh, three years of PT school and uh, being a full-time like physical therapist at Exos help you as grow as a coach? Well, I think so. I, I'm I, I'm always kind of biased because this, this is the path I followed. And I, I'm adamant that th those years of being a full-time therapist helped me. Um, and I, a lot of times when I talk to strength coaches about this, I can, I can kind of flip it and they can understand what I'm saying is I think all strength coaches have had an interaction with a medical professional that has a CSCS, but never fully practices a strength coach. And there's like a missing link there in those conversations. Um, maybe they know, maybe they, they, they're well read, maybe they know their stuff, but they never actually, you know, been in the trenches and worked as a strength coach. And that the, the, the perspective is different or whatever it is. Um, 
So it's very much very, very akin to that is that I really felt like after I graduated school that if I didn't practice purely as a physical therapist, I would be losing something from a skill set standpoint, and I'd be losing something from a perspective, a, a medical perspective standpoint. Um, I don't know what that it is. It's just a kind of an abstract thing. But um, I'm adamant that if you really, if you really want to be dual credentialed, you have to spend time to hone the craft of being dual credentialed. Um, if you want to be a sports scientist, strength coach, you have to spend time learning how to be a sports scientist. Um, if you want to be, you know, a, a PT strength coach, you have to spend time in the weight room and and learn to be a strength coach. It's not something you can just take a test for. So, um, I, I'm biased towards it. I, like I said, that was my path, but I, I'm adamant when I talk to you know people coming out of PT school that if they really want to make the most of being a dual credentialed person, they need to spend time. Uh, honing their craft in the trenches, particularly if they've already been a strength coach, you know, particularly if they've already spent time being a strength coach, it's a, um, it's well worth the time. It's uncomfortable. Um, it's humbling. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of things, but it's, it's, uh, when I look back at that time, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it. Nice. Nice. So I noticed that just like you mentioned, there's more and more strength coaches. They go to like PD school, and also there's like more and more strength coaches who are more like into like uh, learning Python, these kind of stuff, being like sports scientists. Mm-hmm. So I'm a strength coach. I want to make my way to the league. Is there like certain thing if you're like hiring a strength coach, is there a certain thing that you will want like these candidates to like meet the standard? Yeah, well, in our, in our organization, I think um, being dual credentialed is a major draw. And if you look at how our staff is built right now, um, almost everyone on our staff is dual credentialed in some way. And the reason why that is, is because I think we have a high value for everything that physical therapy, strength conditioning, sports science, nutrition, sports psychology has to offer. Um, the problem is when you deal with um, players throughout the course of an NBA season is that there's a human element in which they only have the capacity to interact with so many people. And if they have to meet with, you know, a sports scientist, a, a, a medical personnel, a strength coach, a dietitian, a psychologist, all in the same day, it's like, it's, it's, it's almost overwhelming to them. And so when you surround them by people that are, I don't want to say a one-stop shop because no one is that. Um, but people that can meet a variety of needs at, at different moments in time, it limits the amount of interactions they have to have in a single day. And if you can limit the interactions, you keep, you really keep their, their environment as simple as you can. And that's one of the goals of the organization is our players are exposed to so much chaos on a game night that when they come into the practice building, you want, you want the environment to be as consistent, clean, concise, clear, and simple as possible. And if you can do that by supplying people or, or hiring people around them that, um, you know, can can kill two birds with one stone if they need to, then then you do that, um, and it, it just limits the amount of uh, kind of input the player gets on a daily basis. So I, I always encourage to answer your question. Actually, I, I always encourage people to to have um, at least two skill sets that they are very proficient in and feel very confident in. Um, because it just makes you more valuable. It makes you more versatile. It makes you meet, you know, a multitude of different needs at different times. Cool. So, um, this is, this is like, from my experience, I work with like physical therapists in Taiwan and I learned like SFMA, like, uh, or like MAT has to like do assessments. So personally, I like, besides these, like, first way testing besides like the combine testing i'm more into like observe the movement like observe what they're doing on the court and what they're doing on the weight room so as a therapist is this the way you like uh view or like this is this the way you're gonna like create your program for your athlete yeah i think that you know, like everyone else in the field, I think I would like to think that um, I'm still evolving as a coach and my ideas of how to 
gain the most information is is changing over the course of years. So if you asked me this this question a few years ago, I probably would have said like, yeah, that's probably you know I like to watch him move and do the SFMA, and I can see things. I think I've one thing I've I've learned recently is there's a lot more carryover um, between the SFMA and force plate jumps than you might think. Um, particularly if I, I feel like if you really learn them deeply, then then a lot of the things that show up in the SFMA also show up in force plate testing. Um, I don't want to get too granular on, on, on the podcast with, with the science of that, but like, I think that's part of my evolution as a coach over time. I think if you asked me five years ago, I would be very comfortable with movement assessments, but not as comfortable um, interpreting force plates. I identified that as a weakness. And I think I've gotten more comfortable over the course of the last five years and and as I get more comfortable, I start to see, um, you know, I start to see the 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 overlap and the commonalities and things that show up in my SFMA that also show up in my force plate and vice versa. So um, I wouldn't suggest there's there's any one way. What I would say is like the SFMA gave me a flashlight when I was in the dark when I was young, and so I naturally like, you know, hone that skill set first. Um, and then later on came the sports science and things like that. And I think, you know, really sticking to one thing and learning it very well and then adding to that over the course of time is, is probably their best bet. Drinking out of a fire hose and trying to learn all these various things that are on it's like they're, they're all, it's so if information is so easy to come by now that it's very easy to do that. Um, but I think really staying focused and learning something very deeply. And then once you feel like you've learned that deeply, then try to add to that by, by something else. But I think your approach right now is totally appropriate um, for anyone, but I think you, I think your, your approach will change over the course of time and you'll, you'll grow that way. Nice, nice, nice. Thank you. So I'm going to go back to the list I sent it to you. Okay. Like you mentioned, it's a NBA is an 82 game season. So yeah, 82. So uh, throughout the season or some of the times, you're going to make it to the playoff. So it's longer. How to like load manage these players throughout the season? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I don't think anyone anyone who says they have a good answer to that right now is probably lying to you. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, first off, it's, it's important to recognize that um, a lot of our measurement techniques are pretty, they're in their infancy phase still, regardless of how fancy the, the uh, technology is um, we still haven't learned to, to live with the number of metrics we have. That's first and foremost is we all have to recognize that um, this is new. So like, that's gotta be clear. And I always want you know, just when I speak with coaches, there's some coaches have been around a long time and they have their, you know, their way of doing things. And um, you have to at least acknowledge the fact that um we probably the, the coach that has been coaching for a long time probably has more wisdom than what we've been able to accrue through new technology so far, so far. So like throw that one out there is that there's, there's, um, you know, opinions matter and uh, wisdom matters and coaching experience matters and technology is new. So um, with that said, I, I think some things that we can say pretty firmly are, that um, when players have a drastically increased workload over a sustained period of time, it, it, it becomes unsustainable. So having a good feel for what players have done, not just in the last week, but in the last couple of years of their career or in their life, you know, in the last few years of college into professional, like having a rough grasp of how much work they've done um, throughout the course of a season and a three month span is, is helpful to know because once you start asking them to do significantly more of that and sustain that, like something is going to give, maybe not an injury, um, but you have to have your, your, your radar on for yellow flags, drops in performance over a period of time, whatever. I think we can be pretty confident in that. What that looks like as far as real time goes, like I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say like, this is, this is how you do that. <laughs> uh, what I do know is, Yellow flags of in in people responding poorly to training loads show up in a number of different ways, and they can show up on the force plate. They can show up in your SFMA. Um, 
one of the things I thought I became very comfortable with, and I still believe this is when, when, and if you're a SFMA guy, you might appreciate this. Um, one of the things I do before ga every game is I stretch players on a table and it's not just like a basic stretch and it's not really complicated either. Um, so I don't want to make it out to be really something it's not, but I get to feel their knee rotate tibial femoral joint. I get to feel their hips rotate and it's just a conversation with them. And I try to make it pretty lax. I'm not like measuring anything, but I'm pretty confident that when a system is getting stressed chronically, one of the things that starts to um, change a little bit is motion in the transverse plane of the joint. You see it with pitchers, shoulders, you see it in power lifters, hips. And like, you can feel differences in guys when they're stressed. Um, and that's a yellow flag to me. It's just a yellow flag. That like, you know, this knee is a little you know stickier. The end feels a little bit different than it has been. And like, it's just a mental note that whatever he's, you know, he's just not responding well to the load he is a day. So I think I, my point in saying that is I don't know if we have a good feel for how to load manage throughout a season. I do think it's a good idea to have a really good idea of what this player has done historically in their career and within the last few months compared to what they're doing now. That's really good information to have. I also think it's important to have people around them that pay attention to small things and recognize yellow flags before they become red flags um, and everyone has their toolbox to be able to do that. And, um, you know, ultimately I, I think we'll learn more as we go. Um, but that, that's, that's generally my thought on that whole, that whole thing is like, we're still learning. There's a lot going on there. Uh, <laughs> and, um, we know people respond poorly to high training loads, it's just a matter of like, um, monitoring that and in, in having a human touch element to it versus strictly load, load data, load data. Man, I appreciate your, like your, your approach to, um, load management. Like you mentioned, you're probably going to put, put them, put the athlete on the table to like, to stretch a bit, to feel how they move. I love that answer. I mean, I talked to like plenty of coaches. There was like force play data. There was like uh, how they walk. There was like questionnaire. And I, I don't know. I, I just. I'm all about the least amount of like, you know, like, so we've done questionnaires before we do, we do force play jumps and our players, you know, we don't necessarily follow a good protocol because we, we bet, we bet on how jump heights and things like that. Like it's not like a scientific protocol. We try to keep it loose. But I think the the idea being, you know, you want more than one data point to suggest someone is, you know, if, if I feel, you know, their knees a little stiffer than it has been on the table, I'm going to go look and maybe their force plate. Oh, also their, you know, their RSI is a little bit down. Oh, also, um, you know, I'm talking to them and they're saying they have a hard time sleeping. Like now I've got three separate data points to suggest like, hey, what's our practice plan for tomorrow? And then like, um, what do you think about, hey, coach, what do you think about? Um, you know, this guy getting a little extra, extra rest and he'll be like, no, we need to crush it. Like, no, no, he, we need to go hard. I'm like, okay, cool. But, uh, or they're like totally, like, yeah, like no, no issues there. So like, there's a lot of stakeholders in the mix. There's a, you need a lot more than one data point. You need to have a human touch. The, the data you're, you're collecting should supplement those things and complement those things, but not dictate those things. Um, at least as things are now. I don't think we have enough data to make to to say that we are no longer learning and we now can say definitively that these are the ways people get injured. I don't think we have that. I bet the athletes love like getting on the table and stretch, right? Yeah, I mean part of it is like um they have so before games, just one of my non-negotiables, you kind of come in the weight room and um they understand they understand that I'm I check certain joints a lot. I'm not, like I said, I don't get it going. I don't make it like a weird thing. I'm usually just like, yo, did you see that game last night? And like, I'm just, and I'm just making mental notes for each game. Um, so most of them appreciate that I'm not just purely stretching them. But like I said, I'm, I'm a low input into the athlete, least amount as possible. If they ask me a question, I'll answer it. If not, um, they don't need to know exactly what it is I'm doing on <laughs> every single second. So Nice. I love that. I love the way you I love your approach, man. Love this. So, um, um, I want to like uh, dive a little bit further into this because, like, like I mentioned, 
I used to work with like physical therapists and I totally agree, totally agree with your view about like uh, maybe sometimes they just have tighter hip and you can saw it on their jump performance. So usually how would you like, if that's the case, um, let's say it's a game day, how would you like implement or like, would you like reduce the training volume or like? Yeah, so I think um, if we're asking real life scenario, what I would do um, first and foremost is, and this is just, I'm, this is the skill set I'm comfortable with. So everyone's going to create processes around like what they deem to be most comfortable for them. I'm going to catch the movement problem on the table and I'm going to see if I can correct it right away with minimal time. So like, I'm not going to, you know, the guys come in the weight room for 15 to 20 minutes before the game. Um, I'm not going to spend an hour on the table trying to correct a hit problem. I'm basically going to try to learn the, learn the player, feel the restriction, have a few things in my mind for that player that are most likely culprits attack those very quickly with some manual work. And if I can clean that up, fantastic. If I can't, I'm going to punt it to a practice day. Or I'm going to go tell someone on the medical staff and say, hey, just so you know, um, this is what I saw. I hit, hit the, I did a couple of things. It didn't respond the way I wanted it to. I'm not concerned at this moment as if, you know, unless there's like major pain, but usually it's just a range of motion restriction, not, not concerned. Let's just take a five extra minutes on practice tomorrow and see if we can free that up a little bit more. That's my go-to before I change training plans. Um, the, the force plate jumps we do, we, th those are more longitudinal tracking. I try not to respond acutely to those things. I think for one, um, again, it's one of those things. I, I think that's a little overkill based on what we know about force plate jumps, specifically what we know about how NBA players jump on force plate jumps. <laughs> so like if I, I, uh, we track those and we don't, you know, we do them before games. And if I see something on consecutive days of jumping, I'll, what I'll do is I usually go to the player and say, Hey, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what it's the data is telling me. What do you think? And then let's get one more jump tomorrow. If there's an asymmetry change where you're one and a half standard deviations away from your norm, if there's, um, you know, RSI dropping through the floor, um, I'll give them an opportunity to correct themselves and most often, if you explain what it is and why you're looking at it, they'll, they'll go do it again. And they'll be like, oh, I got you. Um, and then sometimes you find out, yeah, there's a problem. You need to address it, intervene. Sometimes you find out it's like, ah, maybe just a couple bad jumps and we're good. But uh, I rarely will I jump someone once and try to change things based on what I see on the plate. I, I don't think they're – I think that's a little bit overkill based on knowing how NBA players operate around testing pregame. And uh, I think over the course of a season, we get pretty good, pretty good numbers. There's a lot of noise jump to jump though, just based on how we do it. Um, that's generally my approach is like, I'll, I'll target the range of motion stuff right there and then right then and there. That's easy. Um, the jumps, I just kind of look over the long term, and it's more of a, a general tracking over the, over the course of weeks, months, whatever. Nice. I love that. I love it. So, uh, we discussed a lot about like force plate, um, and there's like Daniel both like uh takeoff just the great uh, book. Re yeah recently so yeah. shout out to Daniel both. So I want to like ask about like um there's a lot of like metrics we're gonna look into mainly like uh I personally mainly like gonna focus on impulse or takeoff velocity because it probably could help our athlete like jump higher. So if I want to like help the athlete jump higher to like increase the impulse, vertical impulse, or like takeoff velocity, like what would you do? I know it depends. I know it's a big question. Well, I think um, it may, I don't know how long you want to talk about this. It may warrant like some underlying uh, philosophy on how I personally view kind of movement and in general. Okay? okay. And so here's, and you're going to like this if you have an SFMA background. So if they, if they don't, they're going to think I'm nuts. So generally speaking, we, we talk about um, our staff and our performance area has a, uh, the way we talk about movement is that there is propulsion and there is a, we call it absorption. People can get all caught in the semantics of what, what's actually happening there, but 
we call it propulsion, we call it absorption. Um, and it's ours is based on the gate cycle. And so it looks like this. So there are movement, um, there are movements at each joint that are associated with what it looks like to propel. And there are movements at each joint that are, that are associated with what it looks like to absorb force. So when I propel, if I start from the ground up, the movements associated with that are supination of the foot, plantar flexion of the foot, tibial external rotation, knee extension, hip extension, external rotation, abduction, and then that's basic triple extension of what I just described. But we just add one more thing that you have to be able to rotate your, your torso away from that leg. And that's how you propel from that leg. So that's obviously one leg that's based on the gait cycle. So one way you could get someone in theory to propel better is to make sure those, mo those movements are optimized. Um, and I can, I'll talk about why that is in a minute, but then the flip side, the way the joint actions that are associated with absorption are just the opposite. It's pronation, dorsiflexion, tibial internal rotation, knee flexion, hip flexion, adduction, internal rotation. And you wrote, you flex, you flex your torso and rotate towards that side. So that's the opposite. So if I were to absorb force on one leg, I would probably land on that leg, flex in that ankle, knee, hip, and then rotate down over the top. So one way I can improve my ability to absorb force is to optimize those movements. Okay. And then you start looking at what the force plate is measuring. The force plate is measuring force and time, right? Um, so I can improve my force production by getting stronger, right? But, you know, when you look at jump height from a counter movement jump, the number one factor of jump height went under the number, it is the, it is the definition of it. it's, it's concentric impulse. So the combination of force and time. Okay. So this is gonna be a long winded answer. So when we, so we can increase force production by, by getting stronger. And I'll talk maybe more specifically about that, but we can also increase our access to time through range of motion because range of motion is time, right? So we have, let's say we have players that are very, very stiff players and they don't have dorsiflexion. They don't like to show, show triple flexion. Well, they can't absorb force. They can't, they don't have the joint, the access to joint positions that absorb force. What they are relying on is astronomically high peak forces with sh very short amount of time and they can't dampen, right? And so you can see that in their force curve. And the way you see that is, particularly in asymmetries, is their peak forces might be similar, but their impulses are different. And when you see something like that, what you're saying is they have the force production, but they are missing their access to time somewhere. And that's a joint range of motion issue. So you can attack these things a number of different ways. Generally speaking, if I'm going, if I'm going to look at the force production side of things, the, the propulsive action is you're going to overload that with weight, like typical traditional weightlifting, right? Um, where you're, you're driving into the ground and you can, obviously you can go a number of different ways. You can work on rate of propulsive force with weighted jumps and Olympic lifts, and you can work on overall access to force with just traditional powerlifting movements. But traditionally speaking, the propulsive side of the curve is a weightlifting side of the curve. The braking side of the curve is a little bit different in that you, it relies a lot more on uh, overloading acceleration, right? So when you're, when, when you, when you put heavy weight on a bar to squat it, you actually slow down the eccentric naturally. And that lowers your, that actually dampens your braking impulse when you do that, because you're going slowly, but you push hard on the ground and that increases the pulse. So using that technique to increase your braking side of the curve is usually not very helpful. I mean, it is for novices, but it, towards when we get more specialized, it's not. One of the things I've learned working, this is a lot, again, this is, I could go on for a while about this. One of the things I've learned working with NBA players is that um, some of these guys, is people naturally bias, people have a natural bias towards force production. And they, they bias if they're going to be a propulsive or like muscular mover, or they're going to be elastic, springy, and absorption mover. And basketball in the NBA, you're already dealing with a very specific kind of athlete because they've been filtered through a million different things. Football, same thing. NFL, by the time they get there, you're dealing with a specific kind of athlete there. And there's no, 
there's no secret that some players in NBA are not big fans of lifting weights. But one of the primary reasons I've found is that we're taking these absorption dominant guys. That's how they like to produce force. They like to be, you know, have a quick stretch reflex. And we're trying to impose these heavy propulsive actions on them. And there's sometimes not a great response to that. So you got to be very careful about who you're dealing with, what their strengths are, how they're preferring to produce force and design programs that kind of gear around that. Um, but generally speaking, that's how, that's how we look at things is there are joint actions that are associated with both parts of those, fa those phases. You have to optimize those two. They're a big part of what you're seeing on the force plate. And then when it goes to, you know, Daniel Bove's book was, was dead on, in my opinion, I read you know, the whole thing, a big shout out to, da to Daniel. He put a ton of work into that. And like, that's exactly right. Is that there are people that are naturally inclined to lift heavy, heavy weights and they're probably naturally inclined to do so because of how they produce force naturally. And there are people that are naturally inclined not to. And you <laughs> like, you got to wonder why that is like, none of our players want to be bad basketball players. So it's like, if they, if they don't like deadlifting heavy loads, like you're really going to wonder like, you know, what about their body is telling them this is not helpful right now. So um, they're, they're, they're probably, we, we use a lot more flywheel actions with them. We use a lot more, you know, anything where acceleration is the primary driver. Um, so we try to pair up their movement style with those things. We try to make sure we're, we're optimizing joint range of motion. That's a, that's a long winded answer for a short question, but it's really, it's really hard to discuss those things without having some, some groundwork at least laid out there. Yeah, I know, but I really love that. Like a bit, probably because I have SF in my background, so I really love it. Yeah. I mean, anyone that I, I knew you said that we're gonna have okay, I, I could have this conversation because sometimes people look at me like whatever. I also have like a, I have this heavy feeling, and I was a I was a competitive international Olympic lifter when I was young, so I have a, a heavy Olympic lifting background. Um, this is back before Olympic lifting was like cool. This is like early 2000s, right? Like late 90s. And what I've learned is most strength coaches naturally bias that propulsive side of the curve. And they become strength coaches because they built their confidence in the weight room. The weight room is very effective for them. And so they have these natural biases on what lifts are weight room lifts and appropriate and what aren't. And when you work with players that are very, very different from you, you have to kind of be open-minded and be um, like question why it is like none of our players are trying to be weak. <laughs> That's not going to help them. That's how they feed their family. They ain't trying to, you know, be weak, but like um, you have to kind of step away from the traditions of strength conditioning, your own personal biases of what worked for yourself and think about things in a little bit different way. And that's just how we've evolved to think about things. And to be fair, we may evolve beyond that and change our minds, but that's where we're at right now. Man, I love this. I love this so much. So, uh i'm gonna just jump to the next question um next one is like i know we discussed a little bit of like about impulse and like uh range of motion and like concentric impulse so um let's say if i want to like um help an athlete like jump higher a basketball player usually like the plyo is like the plan we do is try to like uh, increase their ground contact ground contact time, but sometimes in order to like increase their impulse, we probably need to like inc increase the drop jump height, right? So, uh, how to like determine like when do we like increase the drop drop jump height and when when do we like focus on ground ground contact time? Sorry. Well, I think it's part of the, I mean, both touched on this a little bit in his book. Um, and he talks kind of like, what is your goal for the, for what you're doing right now? Uh, you know, outside of his book, I think a drop, I think we're talking about a difference between a drop jump and a depth jump where a drop jump is very minimal ground contact time and a depth jump is longer. Um, one of them has a much higher peak force in the depth jump. And one of them has a much higher rate of force in the drop jump. So it's kind of what you're going for. You can also look at it this way that the drop jump is a little bit more what I would call like lower leg dominant and uh, calf ankle complex dominant. And then um, the, de the depth jumps a little bit more quad tendon knee dominant. Uh, that's where you're getting your stiffness from anyway. The, the, uh, as far as height of the box goes, I think measuring output is a, is a good standard. And one of those is like, 
you know, for a depth jump anyway, in a depth jump, we're trying to, you know, we don't really worry about ground contact time. We're working about maximal output. And so um, understanding where their maximal vertical jump is standing anyway, and then picking a height where I, I think I've heard different numbers on this. I don't have an exact one in my mind, but usually it's like, if they're below like 80% of their maximal uh, vertical jump, then that's too high where you're like, you're losing output when you hit the ground because they're not able to turn that around. But if they're well above that, they're still hitting their maximal vertical somewhere near that. Some of the guys actually get better when you start adding like 12 inch boxes, but when you start getting into higher 18, 24, whatever, you'll start seeing some changes. But I, I've heard, and this is wrong true for me. I haven't done the experiment myself. That somewhere between 100% of their maximal vert and 80% is your kind of good zone. 90% and 80% is like your Goldilocks zone. And when you start dropping below 80% of your maximal vert height out of that, you're, you're getting to a point where they're dropping so fast that they can't turn around that energy efficiently enough. So to me, that seems like just like from a face validity standpoint, that makes sense to me. <laughs> like, like if I can no longer turn that around anymore, then like I'm probably defeating the purpose of what I'm doing and I'm overloading myself. Now there's also another reason to just do landings. Now, there's no problem with that. Um, my take would be if you're, if you're in that 70% range where you're getting like 70% of your vertical jump height or whatever, or 60%, like you're probably in no man's land and you should probably just choose. Do I really, do I want this insanely high landing impact and just land? Or do I want to jump out of it? Like those are two different things. <laughs> so like, I imagine if you're in between there, you're probably floating in no man's land. You should probably just choose a, choose a path. That would be my my instinct. Um, truth be told, I haven't done a ton of depth jumps with NBA players. I used to do a lot of them in college. And so I'm about nine years removed from doing any serious like depth jump work. Um, but the, the drop jumps are really cool because we can just increase box height until their ground contact time reached above 0.25. And once it was above point, they're on the ground too long and they were jumping, we're going off too high. So those are really, those are probably more cut and dry, I think. Um, I, I used to put contact mats in between hurdles to decide how high the hurdles are. And it was just good feedback for players. Um, and they get to feel what 0.25 is very fast. When you're, aiming, when you're aiming for 0.2 and we're saying 0.2 is good, 0.25 is way out of, you know, that's that's we got to shut it down a little bit. <clears throat> they'll figure out 0.20 is very, very fast to get off the ground. Yeah. I asked this because like um they're like there was back in back in the days when I was in Taiwan and I tried to like implement file drop jump to my athlete. Mm. And there was like I think it's like 60 centimeters. You drop off the box, try to touch the rim, he couldn't touch it. I was like, okay, probably today we just not do it. And he was like, no, I'm going to do it. And he just increased it, the jump height, increased the box height and drop off the drop off. And he just stuck the ball. I'm like, what? He went higher. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah. Maybe we had a guy that was very springy and needed some, a lot yeah. of, a lot of momentum. That's it. You know, basketball players have that quality too, where, um, one of the problems with using a counter movement jump with basketball players, particularly like very skilled guys like in the NBA, is that they're really uncomfortable jumping from flat-footed positions. Yeah. And they like those, especially those guys that I'm talking about that are absorption, dominant, elastic, however you want to call it, they need momentum to get into their, their jump. And they will get they will gain momentum in a number. When we try to jump these guys, they will try to get momentum every weird way where they're almost like rocking from their heels to their toes before that it's like it's it's pretty wild to watch him but it's a good example and that's a good anecdote of like you know does this guy need more or less momentum right now and you've found the answer just by doing it like you just needed more yeah but yes till now i still feel like what why <laughs> yeah i mean how, how high is 30 centimeters and inches i'm american we don't know the metric system. To be honest, I don't know. I don't know right now. What's it like? Uh, I'm gonna look it up. I'm gonna look it up because I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that like if it was like 15 inches or, um, let's see, probably 15. Oh, yeah, so it's only it's only 12 inches. So, uh, likely a situation where it was just not offering enough stimulus. That's good. No, no, not 30. Not not not. 
it's like 60 centimeters so it's like so it was it was a good it was a pretty good that's a pretty good height it's like 30. yeah it's like somewhere near i think 70 feet no no am i, am I wrong no no wait i think it's somewhere between like 15 to like 17 inches i think yeah it's a pretty good height that i think that's that's would be my answer is like you pay attention to the output you're getting. And if you're getting more output from more momentum, then like, that's your answer. And if you're getting less with more height and that's your answer. <laughs> yeah. That's just feel weird to me. Yeah. So, uh, last question about training is like, there's tons of like deceleration, like linear deceleration, multi-deceleration. There's like uh crossover step back jump. So uh, there's like uh, so many deceleration in basketball in the game. How would you like train the quality? I know you mentioned it a little bit before. Well, I think so. Again, I have to I have to go to like a principles based approach on that because, like you said, like it's it's really hard for me anyway. I like to build out kind of my global philosophy on certain things because when you start if you, you can get overwhelmed with all the variables very quickly in all the variations of, you know, am I decelerating laterally, linearly? What, what that, what does that look like? Um, and so we try to operate off a couple of rules when it comes to deceleration. One of the rules we already talked about was the joint motions associated with uh, like absorbing force. Um, those are the motions you go through, you know, you triple flex on the leg you're stopping on. So that's ankle dorsiflexion, knee flexion, hip flexion, adduction, internal rotation. And you, you flex your spine and you rotate towards that leg. And that's how you, that's how you absorb force. Right. So we talked about that. So when our players do exercises that have a deceleration component to them, um, the way we coach them is the same for almost everything. And one of the, one of the things that I really like to lock them into is um, where is your weight on your foot? Because to me, no matter what direction you're going in, when you're absorbing force, if you think of the midpoint of your foot, so where you're at in mid stance and gait, when the when you're moving, when your your pressure is moving towards that midpoint, so whether that's heel, your your heel striking, and you're loading into your midfoot, or you land on your toes and you're moving back towards your midfoot, when you're moving towards your midfoot, you are absorbing force. As soon as you start moving away from your midpoint, then you are no longer absorbing. You're now propelling. And so here's an example. So I do a forward lunge and I step, I step forward and my heel hits the ground in front of me. The weight eventually is going to, you know, this is the floor. My It goes through my heel into my midfoot. That If I'm doing an absorption-based drill, that's where I should, the weight should stop. As soon as I start rolling away from my midfoot and I'm on my toe and the guys try to push back out of that lunge, they've gone past what I call absorption and they're out into propulsion. We start toe jamming. And so the, what we ask our players to do is make sure that if, if the drill is supposed to be an absorption based drill, the absorption phase should stop when the, the weight meets their midfoot. Right? So if they're rolling past their midfoot on the bottom of a lunge before they push their way up, that's wrong. Right? So all of our drills have, um, and that, that applies a lateral lunge. If I'm rolling outside, if I'm, this is the inside of my foot and the that meets the ground first, I'm going towards the, I don't even know if I can show this. I'm going towards the middle of my foot. I should then not go roll the outside to stop myself. I should stay midline and over. And if I do go past the midline and I'm now pushing off the outside of my foot. So like all of our drills are the same and coach the same from that standpoint is like, if, if, if we want to do a walking lunge, you when the weight goes to your midfoot, you should be at the bottom of that movement and you should not be on your toe because you're now past your absorption. And like, I think we, by having some global rules like that, it allows our players to keep things simple um, for us to understand if I want to do an absorption-based drill, I'm going to be somewhere around my midfoot, <laughs> like at the bottom. Um, and that also tends, in my opinion, to clean up a lot of problems. Like it applies to Euro steps. It applies to plyometrics. When I land on my toes, when I land on my toes coming down from a jump, I roll back 
to my midfoot and my heel does not crash into the ground because if my heel crashed in the ground, I've gone past my midfoot. And so it's been a, a kind of a global theme for us and it applies to a lot of different things. Um, so if you see our players, a lot of times will be jumping barefoot and what they're trying to do is focus on when they land to stay on their midfoot and not past it. Um, and my just, it, it seems to clean up a lot of things without even coaching a whole lot is, is where I'm at. So um, you can get overwhelmed with all the different movements, but generally speaking, we have our rules for deceleration. We try to follow them in all lifts. That seems to be the one that has helped the most is, ma is making them understand that um, your the rules of deceleration, your foot matter a lot, and you should be able to pay attention to that. Oh, I love this. Man, I love this. <laughs> so last thing before I let you go, okay? I know it's past like 45 minutes, but last thing, okay? Um, there's like tons of coaches want to make it to the league. So for those young coaches who want to do it, do you recommend them to like stay focused to basketball or like, or like um, try to explore with different sports, learn different things? Yeah, you know, I have a bad, um, I'm I have a bad answer for this. No worries, so man. My thing was, you know, I never I never set out on being in the NBA, and. You know, if you talk to Pat, he'll tell you it was kind of weird to him that I wanted to go to the NBA when I was there. But like my thing was that I wanted to be a good coach. And I just wanted to follow good people where I found good people. And um, my interview in Oklahoma City was really interesting to me because I met our, our now head coach, was our G League head coach at the time. And my boss is still there and our GM is still here. And like I remember walking out of that and being like, these are people that I can be like really good with. Um, and that was my primary motivation. The same motivation it was to go to Missouri, the same motivation it was to go to Exos. Um, so I never really sat by me personally. I never really set out to, to, uh, to be in the NBA. When someone tells me their primary goal is to be in the NBA, I try to talk them out of it <laughs> because one, um, you ever heard the saying, never meet your idols because they'll, they'll let you down? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never yeah. meet your idol, they'll let you down. So like when you have this idea of what the NBA is going to be like, it's like, it's it, you inevitably, it's not what you think it's going to be. And so whenever I get calls or emails from people that are like, you know, I want to, you know, I'm interested in being in the NBA. What can I do? Can I meet you? Whatever. I'll actually have them at a game, but I make sure I'm at, I'm at a road game. And the reason why I make sure I'm at a road game is because – um I don't know if you've spent a lot of time during pregame on the road. More often than not, we're working with players in like concrete hallways with like bands and med balls and like almost no equipment. And they need to see that because I don't think they recognize if I brought them to our practice facility where everything's nice and all like, oh, this is great. But like I want them to know that like be careful when you meet your idol because you might be let down. So like that's number one. You. Number two is like, um, don't sell yourself short and think that there are, there aren't other situations that can be as flourishing for yourself as just one. Um, what if, if what you're saying is I want to be in the NBA because I want to challenge at the highest level. I want a place where I have high accountability, uh, where I have a lot of responsibility. You can get that a lot of places outside the NBA. So um, I remind people of that. If they still are saying, I don't care what you think, I, I want to be in the NBA, I'm totally fine with that. I'm not going to talk you out of it. But I would say um, focus on being putting yourself in a position to be good because a lot of people can get in the door of the NBA, but to survive a kind of a cutthroat business, you have to have skill sets to support that. And the only way you can get that is um, really not by chasing, uh, like chasing the kind of like a singular focused dream, but by making your focus on becoming good, you were talking about getting dual credentials that, that all still applies in that, in that conversation. Um, outside of that, I'll, I'll also tell them like one of the major, and this is, this is a lot of advice I give people. One of the major determining factors in people that are in the NBA and people that are not, isn't even like, like skill sets it has to be good enough to be, you know, to be serviceable. But the willingness to do the hours and the travel, 
um, in, in the small things is what will phase a lot of people out. It will phase a lot of people out. So make sure you're coming for the right reasons, if that's the case. Um, because if you're have rose colored glasses on and you don't recognize that, the, you know, every there's, there's downfalls to every environment. NBA is no different. Um, but if you, if that's your focus, it's probably not the best focus to have in my opinion. I'm, I'm just a guy, but like, um, that, that, that's usually my answer. I, I've, I've, I've worked in high school settings. I've worked in college for a long time. I saw the private setting and I'm a professional now. And so when I, I remind people that I've seen all four settings, I've seen what they have to offer and not offer. They're all different. They're all good in some ways. They're all bad in some ways. Um, and the NBA has its note has, is, is, can be very fulfilling, but it has no shortage of down downsides. And like, it's important for them to know that. Yeah. It's like, I'm working with, basketball right now and try to learn from our track coaches speed and jumps i mean me personally just want to be the best version of myself and try to be the best coach i can be you you will and you will learn from working with other sports uh, no i didn't i didn't work with basketball before before i came to the nba whoa ever. um I worked with football a lot. I worked with softball, baseball. I worked with track a little bit. I worked with um, volleyball. My This is the first basketball job. And there was a learning curve when I got there. But like um, those, I worked with military, special forces. Um, all those things, I think, set me up for better success than if I had, when I worked with people that had purely worked at basketball, only basketball, always basketball. Um, you have a lot of blind spots, man. And um, getting a more versatile background is really helpful. Obviously, it looks better to have good basketball experience when you're applying for a basketball job. Um, but like, there's all there, things happen in in due time, and um, that's why I always tell just 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 follow good people, set yourself up. Don't don't title chase, don't money chase. Um, meet good people, follow them, and set yourself up for places that can really allow you to thrive. And I think that's what I found in Oklahoma City. And that ultimately made me make the jump to the NBA. So my advice is always the same to people. Um, it's never what they want to hear, though. <laughs> so that's the downside. Man, I think people love this answer. Try to be the best version of themselves. Love that. Yeah, NBA is a fleeting moment, man. Like, I, like this is nine years. I think the average head strength coach for a single team, the average number of years is like four. It's like, like I'm on the downward climb, man. <laughs> I'm beating the odds, but uh, so it's just a fleeting moment. So make sure you you put yourself around people that make you better for the next thing. Yeah, thank you, thank you. That's all I have for today. Thank you so much, and I enjoyed it.